This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, expeditions for flying, singing and vampire frogs. But first up, here's the news. Man or mouse? Spliced mice with human genes learn more quickly than plain mice. Humanized mice were created by researchers at MIT, Ludwig Maximilians University, and the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology by genetically engineering mice to express the human FOXP2 gene in their brains. The mice were able to learn to navigate a maze more quickly, but only when they had a rich environment. The gene was first identified as contributing to language development when a family who had inherited language problems were found to have a mutated version of the gene. The human FOXP2 gene expresses a protein that's only two amino acids different from the mouse FOXP2 gene. Mice with the human version of the gene grew longer and more complex connections between their brain cells. They tested the mouse's ability to learn a route based on the texture of the ground, which uses procedural memory, and the mouse's ability to navigate when there were visible landmarks, which uses declarative memory. The humanized mice and the normal mice performed the same in either experiment. However, when they were in a situation where they could use either or both cues, the humanized mice learned to find the hidden chocolate in seven days instead of 11 days. The researchers conclude that the humanized FOXP2 gene makes it easier to turn mindful actions into behavioral routines, turning consciously learned rules into automatic behavior. While speeding up from 11 days to 7 days doesn't seem like a big increase to intellectual performance, keep your eyes open for more splice mice with humanized brains. The paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and was titled Humanized FOXP2 Accelerates Learning by Enhancing Transitions from Declarative to Procedural Performance. An oral vaccine for AIDS? Researchers from Paris Descartes University and the University of Chinese Medicine in Guangzhou have mixed up a probiotic drink that prevents the monkey equivalent of AIDS, SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus. The technique gives such good protection that they're now working on a version for humans. Normal vaccines work by activating the immune system. However, that's exactly what AIDS needs to reproduce and spread itself around the body it hijacks the immune CD4 T-cells to reproduce and infect. The new vaccine does the opposite. It persuades the body not to activate an immune response 
by placing the inactivated SIV virus particles together with bacteria that the body already recognises. The kind of bacteria you find in drinkable probiotic yoghurt. Instead, the vaccine stimulates a previously unknown kind of immune cell called the CD8 T-cells. These stop the CD4 T-cells from recognising SIV and thus becoming infected. This leads to SIV tolerance, where the body assumes the virus is harmless, and therefore it is harmless. The 15 rhesus macaque monkeys given the oral vaccine were still free of SIV after four years. The researchers caution that many vaccines that work for animal analogues of HIV haven't been successful in treating humans, but they're going ahead with two safety trials of the probiotic anti-HIV cocktail in humans. The paper was published in the journal Frontiers in Immunology and was titled Mucosal SIV Vaccines Comprising Inactivated Virus Particles and Bacterial Adjuvants Induce CD8 plus T Regulatory Cells That Suppress SIV Positive CD4 plus T Cell Activation and Prevent SIV Infection in the Macaque Model. A new Chief Executive Officer for CSIRO has been appointed to start in January 2015. Dr. Larry Marshall has a PhD in physics from Macquarie University in Sydney and has been working on six different startup businesses and the venture capital industry in America for the last 25 years. Dr. Marshall has started talking about getting CSIRO to investigate water divining in an interview on ABC Rural News. Curiously, the headline on the ABC News website was changed recently from New CSIRO Head Wants to Make Water Divining Easier for Farmers to CSIRO head, keen to expand water research. Here's what he said. This is a little bit out there, um, but something that has always fascinated me, I don't know if you've ever seen farmers find water. And as a scientist, I can't explain how they do this, but there's a number of tricks when people douse for water. And I can tell you, I've seen people do this with close to 80% accuracy. No idea how they do it. But when I see that as a scientist, um, it makes me question, is there instrumentality that we could create that would enable a machine to find that water? It's the kind of, those kind of projects, I think we need to push the envelope to see what we can do. Um, remember, our mission fundamentally is to do whatever we can in terms of creation of technology um, and support for the land to enable our farmers to be globally competitive. So are you talking about a more scientific uh, machine approach to water divining or divining for water? Well, again, that's that's a little bit out there, um, but it's something I've always wondered whether there's something in the electromagnetic magnetic field or in gravitation anomaly, whether there's something that would enable you to more efficiently detect water. So can we expect to see some research dollars being invested in that particular area? Well, I think, first of all, I'm going to take the very good advice of my more level-headed um, scientists who probably understand a lot more about this than I do, but it's definitely a question that I'm going to ask. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Inspiring Australia is hosting monthly talks by scientists at libraries around Sydney. This month I went to the Customs House Library at Circular Quay to speak with Dr Jolie Rowley. 
Dr Jodie Rowley is the coordinator of the Australian Museum's Research Institute and amphibian biologist. Jodie leads expeditions to find rare amphibians across Southeast Asia. I began by asking her to tell me about her expeditions. Yeah, there's a lot of those. So in 2004, there was a global amphibian assessment and amongst highlighting that amphibians were in a lot of trouble globally, they highlighted that Southeast Asia was basically a knowledge black hole. So we didn't even know how many species were there, how they were doing. And so part of my job is these expeditions in search of rare, poorly known, and in many cases, undescribed species of amphibian. So you go off into the wild, into the mountaintops and into the mud and look for all these amphibians. We do. So I usually fly to Vietnam, meet up with some colleagues at Vietnamese universities and museums and some of my students. We get to a remote village. From there, we get as far as we can without walking. So motorbikes, maybe a car if we're lucky, boats. And then we walk. We hike into these usually quite remote places, up mountains, looking in places that have never been biologically explored in some cases. And in most cases, no one's ever looked for frogs or other amphibians there. So we're trying to get into these places and try and stop it from being a black hole of knowledge, try and get some information on what species are there, how they're doing, what they're threatened by, and, and document new species as well. What's the importance of the biodiversity? Well, Vietnam in particular is a country that is experiencing huge growth in terms of both population and economy, and as a result, huge habitat loss. So part of the job of, that I see, the driver for the work that I do, is to try and firstly document what's there, in some cases before it becomes extinct, which is a terrible reality, and use that information to then try and prioritise the areas that are going to need to be conserved. It's a, it's a sad reality that we can't conserve all the forests that exist now, but we can try and get as much information as possible about the biodiversity within the forest so that we can prioritise our limited conservation resources. And what are the types of things that are threatening these amphibians? Mostly habitat loss. Habitat loss is by far the greatest threat to amphibians in Southeast Asia. It's got one of the highest relative rates of deforestation in the world and I, I witnessed that going back to Vietnam and I see sometimes we go to the same places and it's dramatic effect. Protected areas in Vietnam often have people living within them and so they're undergoing some habitat loss even within the boundaries of some protected areas. Another threat that's, that's a big problem is collection. So people collecting amphibians for food, for traditional medicine and the international pet trade. So salamanders and really beautiful tree frogs or flying frogs in particular are targeted and people will pay huge amounts of money, hundreds of dollars in Europe, Japan um, and America in order to keep these as pets. And so that can be a very big incentive for local people to collect you know, every last one if they can. Um, Disease is another potential threat and in introduced species, but so far they haven't. Nothing compares to to habitat loss and for a few more beautiful species collection. And you're talking about the the way when you were looking at the data and when you're travelling, you're using Google Earth and you see all sorts of patterns about where they go and where they don't go. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? One of the ways that I pick where me and my colleagues are going to go into the field is by looking at Google Earth, looking at how 
patches of forest, seeing where the forest still exists, seeing where there's nice high elevation mountains that rare or poorly known species might be, and then targeting these areas. So it is kind of fun. You get to look at an area on Google Earth and then go, okay, let's try and get there. Now, sometimes it doesn't work. We don't get the permissions to work there or it becomes too difficult for other reasons, but quite a few places we've picked out. And that's particularly a good way to find forest that's not within protected areas, which is actually not a lot of forest that's not within protected areas, but to find areas that, that haven't been surveyed before that actually might be disappearing at a really fast rate and and so you get a good idea and it's it's a fantastic tool to let us know that you know that we might be able to go up that road there and stay in that village there and there looks like a really good forest in here so that's one of the ways we use you were talking about things like underestimated diversity and cryptids yeah so one of the problems with knowing what we've got in terms of amphibians in southeast asia is that there's a lot of what we call morphologically cryptic species or cryptic species and what they are is the frogs that look very similar to each other so different frog species um, they might be totally different genetically they see each other as totally different species you know there's no problems with them identifying each other but us humans are so clumsy and at figuring out you know frogs that we just all lump them into the same group so there might be only very subtle differences between them and there's actually some frogs where males of the species you cannot identify them or there's no way that humans have been able to figure out how to tell them apart from looks alone so we need to bring in dna and we need to bring in calls so frogs are really cool in that one of the other things they give us as clues to who they are and how many species we have is their advertisement calls frogs don't want to waste time on calling if they attract the wrong species that's just a waste of everyone's time and effort so they have very species specific calls and the females have ears that are tuned to the caller of their own species so if we are able to get a frog while it's calling sit in the dark with a microphone and record its call we can then analyze on a computer and figure out who's who it's another line of evidence and you were talking about a frog that sings like a bird Yes, the frog that sings like a bird. Its Latin name is Grisixilis quangi, which is significantly <laughs> harder to say. And this, this frog, Quang's tree frog, actually has a very bizarre call. So most frogs that you would hear in your garden have a very repeated call. So it's like, rant, 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 very stereotypical. But this frog, instead, it actually... I, the best way that I could think of saying was that it is it sings like a bird so in scientific terms it's got a hyperextended vocal repertoire so it basically means it's saying a lot more than just one thing over and over again but we have no idea what at this stage but it's a very beautiful amazing call for a frog. You talked about quite a few other interesting ones. So there was a vampire flying frog. The vampire flying frog, it sounds like a a bit of a, I don't know, nightmare or a fantasy, depending on which way you look into it. But I discovered that frog with my colleagues and we named it that, but we named it for reasons. So it's a flying frog. So it's a member of the genus called Racophorus that has webbed hands and feet. And it uses frogs in this in this genus use them from, to glide like parachute from tree to tree they don't actually fly but that's their common name and the vampire part of their name comes from the fact that they're tadpoles instead of having just the normal kind of like raspy little biggy things that tadpoles have that are pretty nondescript in terms of mouth parts these have enormous mouths with two curved black fangs sticking out of them so we couldn't think of a better name than a vampire flying frog and although the adults sort of there don't have the fangs there were other frogs that did 
Yeah, there's actually a group of uh, frogs called uh, fanged frogs, which which are another another family altogether. But they actually have they're not actually teeth; they're just processes that come out from the bones. But they look very much like two teeth from the bottom jaw. And the males we assume use these to fight with. So there's reports of them headbutting each other. They also have enormous heads usually and biting each other as they sort of scrabble over really good breeding sites. So if they find a really good site that they think is going to be just great for their tadpoles and the females are going to love, they will battle it out to keep those sites. There was also the flying frogs. So you mentioned Helen's flying frogs? Yes, Helen's flying frog is one of the like best in terms of flying frogs. It's got the most enormous webbed feet. So it's a large frog, apple green, about nine centimetres long. It sits sort of in the palm of your hand and it's only known from two lowland forest sites near Ho Chi Minh City. And this frog relies on trees because it li- lives in trees almost all the time. And it comes down to breed, we assume, and it probably does that by gliding down. I discovered that with my colleagues a little while ago and I decided when it came, when I realised it was a new species and we had to describe the species, the name I chose was Helen flying frog and my mum's name is Helen so I named the frog after my mum which maybe to some people might be an offensive thing if if you get a frog named after you but my mum was just beside herself and she's still so happy it's her throne cover she just got a tote bag with Helen's flying frog on it she tells everyone she's had a frog named after her and and that was my intention was to make her happy and name a frog after her she supported her only child moving to Cambodia and being in remote forests climbing up mountains and she didn't know where I was and and when she became ill I decided it was uh you know it was the time to to give her a frog to lift her spirits <laughs> terrific and you were talking about frogs with green blood and turquoise bones green yeah there are at least four species and three particularly that i've seen in vietnam that actually they're small frogs and they're green but what's cool is that their, their blood is actually green their bones are turquoise and it's due to a bile pigment no one knows exactly why but there's a few reptiles and things like that that do have this green blood but it's bizarre and their skin is almost transparent so the frog that sings like a bird and another two frogs are these sort of frogs within central and northern vietnam that that are just amazing little gems very small transparent and green blood and they're also really really beautiful frogs as well they're about the equivalent of the kind of glass frogs that you see in central america they're sort of the asian equivalent that you can literally see their bones through through their legs and sometimes you can even see their internal organs and things because their skin is, is just so transparent then we went on to talking about frogs that nest yeah i i never would have thought that frogs did this but there's actually frogs that build nests for their babies and these are a type of fanged frog they live in very wet forests where the the forest floor is quite damp and covered in leaf litter and usually quite clay clay on the ground and the male frogs burrow their little snouts into the ground and make tiny little holes like circular depressions that's about the size or just a bit bigger than their body they sit in these holes and they call all day actually they're quite strange because most frogs only call at night and attract the females to their nests they lay the eggs within the nest and they must have just enough water within what they lay that and enough humidity in the air that the tadpoles end up hatching and swimming around in circles in this tiny little homemade puddle for the little nests and then turning straight into frogs and, and hatching out of there. So there's a lot of different ways that frogs actually give parental care. So a lot of people think of frogs as the kind of animal that just puts out thousands of eggs and, and then 
ways of by good luck but the vampire flying frog females go back to their their babies and feed them unfertilized eggs and in this case this frog builds a nest for the babies and possibly guards them as well so they usually tend to have another nest nearby that they call from and, and potentially if something was to come along and try and eat it they'd probably do their best you finished off with, I guess, a bit of a warning note that, that because so many frogs are becoming extinct before they even get discovered, that you've now got forensic taxonomy. Yeah, it's a terrible state uh, where we've now got a term for describing species that are actually already extinct. So there's been a couple of instances of this where people have found frogs in museum collections that were collected a long time ago and realised that uh, actually that's an undescribed species, but now, you know, it's either its habitat's completely gone, so there's nowhere it was there, or, you know, it hasn't been found since. Uh, in many cases in Central America, it's due to a disease that, that wiped out frogs, um, especially in one genus. So a lot of frogs are being described that, that no longer exist and some was also from a study that, that looked at the DNA of frogs from an area and realised, oh, there was a lot of these cryptic species, but now they can no longer find them because they've already become extinct. And unfortunately in Southeast Asia as well, there's probably a high likelihood that this is happening. Frogs that are restricted to certain drainage basins or actually some of these areas don't have forest anymore. So we can predict that we've lost species already before we even knew they existed and we may never know they existed. Throughout most of Asia, we, we don't think that there's been these dramatic kind of amphibian declines that have occurred, for instance, in the wet tropics in Australia or Central America, and they, these declines were due to disease. And for a long time, there were sort of these enigmatic declines that no one knew why they happened, but all of a sudden, a stream where you would previously find, you know, 60 species of frog, now there's only three. And so these declines were noticed. But in Southeast Asia, while we don't think there's been declines of this scale, it's actually a little hard to tell because no one's been looking. So it is a little bit like that if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around so there is a chance that the tree's fallen in the forest that amphibian populations have declined and it's just that nobody was uh, there to to witness it. Do you have an online presence if people want to look for your work? Uh, the Australian Museum uh, is a great place to start and I've also got a website that's just jodyrowley.com j-o-d-i-r-o-w-l-e-y and that's got lots of frog photos on it so that's why I direct people there. <laughs> well Jody, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Dr Jodie Rowley, coordinator of the Australian Museum's Research Institute. You can see her photos on jodyrowley.com and find out more about her research at www.australianmuseum.net.au and follow her on Twitter at Jodie Rowley. The next Inspiring Science Talk will be at Ultimo Library on Wednesday the 5th of November at 6pm. Dr Christopher Casanelli explains carotenoids, why vegetables are good for us. And Dr. Vanessa Moss talks about ancient galaxies and cosmic timescales. Listen next week for my interview with Dr. Greta Frankham, who spoke at Customs House about fighting environmental crime with wildlife forensics. And now an adult concepts warning. Fast forward three minutes if you need to avoid adult concepts. It's three minute thesis time. Entrants have to present their PhD thesis in three minutes in a way that anyone can understand with only one slide. The 2014 Trans-Tasman Final Competition will be held on the 3rd of November at the University of Western Australia. Last year, the finals for the Trans-Tasman 3-Minute Thesis Competition were held at the University of Western Sydney's Parramatta campus. Gemma Sharp is from the Department of Clinical Psychology at Flinders University. Her talk comes with an adult concepts warning, so fast forward three minutes if that's a problem. Her talk is titled, Paying for Lip Service. Paying for Lip Service. 
No, I'm not talking about the lips on your face. I'm talking about the lips of the vagina. Yes, I did just say vagina on this auspicious occasion, and these vaginal lips are called the labia. It seems more and more women and young girls, some as young as 10, are paying for lip service. That is, they are going under the knife to reduce the size of their labia in a cosmetic procedure called labiaplasty. The main aim of this surgery is to remove labial tissue which hangs down, so the genital surface appears smooth, just like Barbies, as shown on my slide. And so this look has been nicknamed the Barbie doll look. This highly unrealistic Barbie doll look, which resembles a prepubescent child, appears to be a very much Western ideal because in countries like Japan, a large butterfly-shaped labia is considered attractive. And in Rwanda, women purposely attach weights to their labia to make them longer. With this large cultural variation in mind, I wondered how this prepubescent Barbie doll look had seemingly become the ideal genital appearance in our society and was causing some women to want to permanently alter their genital appearance through surgery. From the literature, we know that girls and women who undergo labiaplasty feel that their slightly protruding labia, which is perfectly normal and healthy, is highly abnormal, and this significantly affects their confidence and self-esteem. But that's about all we know from the limited psychological research in this field. So for my PhD research, I developed a model to identify the social and cultural factors that are perpetuating this Barbie ideal. According to my survey of over 350 adult Australian women, it seems that exposure to idealised genital images in the media, in particular through pornography, is the strongest influence on labiaplasty consideration. However, women's conversations with their female friends about genital appearance and any negative comments from romantic partners is also associated. And, perhaps unsurprisingly, the current trend to remove all of one's pubic hair is also linked. My PhD research is the first to systematically examine the socio-cultural influences on labiaplasty, and my results could potentially be used in the future to design interventions for girls and women who are concerned with their genital appearance. Overall, I hope that my PhD research will finally give us a much-needed insight into why women are paying for lip service. Thank you. That was Gemma Sharp from the Department of Clinical Psychology at Flinders University with her three-minute thesis. You can find out more about the three-minute thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and apparently on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links and videos and photos 
about this week's show. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on funscience.org.au. It's in slow motion, but it's getting there. It might take a few more weeks before we go live. I will notify you. I'd really appreciate hearing from you about the funder rewards you think I should offer. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to contribute a small science story on Diffusion? Or would you like to read one of my scripts? I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, How Does Frog Become a Frog? by Marais and Miranda. How does a frog become a frog Squatting on a bump on a log? How does a frog become a frog Instead of a big pollywog? How does a frog become a frog Squatting on a bump on a log? In the spring, the frogs had mated, the females' eggs were expelled. Then the male frog fertilized the eggs and said farewell. Soon the eggs were tiny embryos, the embryos became polywogs. They had gills, had gills, until they grew up into frogs. That's how a frog becomes a frog, squatting on a bump on a log. That's how a frog becomes a frog instead of a big pollywoggle.